We'll just do a soft intro now. Like uh, the soft snow outside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. actually, uh, I, the latest report uh, from Primitive Man. Um, shout out to Ethan McCarthy, former guest of the show, um, quite, a, quite a while back now, man. Uh, they said they toured all over the country and didn't see any snow. In a, uh, did you, I don't know if you caught up with the latest social media posts, sir. No, I uh, have not. I'm off the social medias. In fact, I've blocked them on my computers. You know, not necessarily the worst move nowadays that you're talking about, but I got to say Primitive Man is one of the few scant reasons to stay on social media nowadays. Hmm. I, I'm just enjoying some of the comments, keeping it real. Um, and so, uh, very interesting still, still life photography, I'll say, coming out of that band lately, sir. Uh, much, much cheers and respect to them. Um, but how are you? How are you today, my good man? Who and who are you, by the way? Oh, uh, hello, Will. My name is Tom, uh, from Heavy Hole fame, I hmm. suppose. Yes, uh, sir. So over twelve people know who I am. Um, over let's a, ba- see. A, a baker's dozen knows uh, who I am. Yeah. It's good. No, I'm good, man. Just hanging. Uh, tis a season. Ho, ho, ho. All that stuff. I'm indoors right now. Locked inside. I have COVID. It's mm. fine. I'm doing fine. You're okay. You're, you're, you're uh, feeling good. Yeah. I, uh, three days of being out, and then pretty much it's... Uh, I want to go. You know, I'm ready to take some huh. walks. But uh, I'm staying inside to be considerate of others' health. Well, that's that's. Uh, I'm I'm glad to uh, to at least be seeing you, man. That's why we're skyping today. We're for this little uh, throwback uh, produced episode, man. Um, but yeah, it's good. To, by the way, I'm Big Will. Heavy whole podcast. Casual intro. So um, casual. Yeah, sit. I'm sitting by the fireplace. I got a Duralog in there. Um, it said safe for indoors on the package. Got the. I got three cats. One on my shoulders, um, like a mink, but it's alive. And uh, two on my knees, um, holding my notebook for me, with my notes for tonight's uh, episode. <laughs> One's the holiday season. Pages. How yeah, cute! It's the, it's the holiday season. It's great. I, I love it, man. Yeah, big cats. I got really big cats, man. They're they're like appropriately sized because I'm a big guy, you know. Perfect. How are you doing over there, though? Seriously, man. What, like while you've been um, uh, isolated, what have you been keeping yourself busy with, man? I mean, it hasn't all been C sharp, right? No, I've been reading a uh, pretty fun book. I've been watching a lot of movies and logging them. Uh, my letterboxed account is getting very full. Wow. What? Uh, what? What was? Uh, yeah. What was? What was on the? What was on the flick schedule uh, lately, man? What do you watch today? What do you watch? I pulled the old uh, diary here. Um, just before dawn, that was fun. Ghost Killers versus Bloody Mary. Really Whoa. good Brazilian. Horror comedy, very fun. Wow, I, uh, already, I, I feel outclassed already, man. Uh, Yo Jimbo, uh, mm. Kurosawa classic. Wow, okay. Tenebrae, I, a Argento classic. A little coming a little bit closer to my comfort comfort zone there. Okay, I watched The Postman Always Rings Twice, the original from 1946, and the remake with Jack Nicholson in 1981, back to back. Oh boy, I'm a I'm not a well-educated man, sir. I'm I I apologize. I gotta say that. the original was better, but yeah. uh, enjoyable jaunt through Hollywood. Well, <laughs> you just smashed 
uh, any semblance of uh, what I was about to do and try to make myself. I just rewatched uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Love it. The, Love yeah, Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie. Yeah, he did it. He made the little movie back then. Um, I, yeah, I, I thought it was clever. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I still enjoy I, I that too, shamelessly. No, I don't. Yeah, I feel like I stumbled into like a uh, a dysrhythmia rehearsal, and I was like, "Oh, what's up? You guys ever hear anal canto?" With you know, <laughs> it's got me outclassed by a lot by a lot here. Um, re- regardless, though, uh, you know, I'm glad I'm glad that you've been uh, you know using your time to at least not be doing C sharp constantly, man. You were worrying me a little bit there. You were getting to be a little zombified. Oh, I still am, but I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm overall pretty. I, I, I am doing a good job of keeping my activities eclectic and growth-worthy. <laughs> uh, wow. You know, I got to admit, I was a little stuck on the Segway. Got a little stuck in the mud out there, you know, on the little, like, like it wasn't snowing, it was raining type of Christmas, man. It was a little... And then Tom came along, gave me a little push out there because eclectic... Uh, what'd you say? Eclectic and and growth, and growthful. I think was the word I used. Eclectic and growth. Uh, yeah, whatever you said just a few minutes ago. Travel back in time in the spaceship, because a man who is eclectic and uh, growth inspiring, uh, if nothing else, is Wilson uh, Ray Wren, uh, drummer and multi instrumentalist, perhaps best known for Animals Killing People, also Andromorphous Rexalia, formerly of Copremesis, uh, and Columbia's Purulent. So we're going to get him on the horn and talk about all things uh, death metal and beyond. We're going to go there today. I'll get him on the phone, I suppose. Uh, I, I don't know, man. You might not even need to. Just think real hard right now. This is Big Will from Heavy Hole Podcast, and I'm here with today's very special guest, Wilson Rayron from Bogota, Colombia, uh, and currently in New York City. Is that accurate, sir? Yes, sir. Uh, very nice to speak with you, Wilson, and to have you on the show. We've been acquainted for a long time in the New York City metal scene, uh, and we're going to get to that and all your current work and things that you currently got going on. But before we do that, uh, the listeners know we always start all the way back and want to know a little bit about your background. Is it okay if we ask about if you're from a musical family and if there are musicians older than yourself um, and your brother who we'll get to uh, who predate you? Oh uh, Yeah, okay, so I'm going to start telling you a little bit about, about my background and where I come from and why everything in my life is all about art. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of people in my family that are artists, starting from my dad. He was a musician, a guitar player. Uh, he was a uh, hippie in the 60s, 70s. <laughs> and uh, he was in a band. Uh, he was uh, playing guitar and stuff. And he was the one that uh, first gave my my brother, uh, David, his guitar that he was using. My dad was using in a band when he was playing and, you know, uh, just into music and stuff like that. And yeah, I also, my brother, my sister, and my mom, they, we all make art. And uh, that's how everything started. You know, I started at a very early age as a drummer. Uh, and I founded the band Purulen, or Purulen, as we say it in Colombia. 
uh, with my brother and another guy in in the neighborhood where we were living in in Bogota, and that's where everything started. I started uh, playing drums, and after, until this day, I haven't stopped. Uh, I'm still playing in bands. You know, my current band is Animals Killing People, and uh, I moved from Colombia in 1997, 98, and now I'm here, and uh, I'm still making art and. Every day, that's my life. Okay, man. And there's there's a lot there to talk about you. So your father was a guitarist. What kind of music was he playing in the 60s and 70s? Well, he was, from what I understand, you know, he was just uh, playing like rock. He definitely was uh, into classic rock. And I remember his, uh, the first song that I learned was a song from Carlos Santana that he taught me in guitar when I was probably like 10 years old. So he was definitely into rock music, and, you know, that's the music that he was playing at that time. Okay, and um, now your your brother, uh, David, um, uh, you know, may he rest in peace, and will of course, um, uh, speak of his contributions and of of, uh, Puyolin, Um, but is he older than you, or are you the eldest brother? Uh, Yeah, at the time when he was on this planet, he was two years older, or maybe more like a year and a half. Uh, yeah, and he was always like my leader, my master, you know, everything that he was doing, I, I wanted to do. And, you know, we were, we grew up together, uh, playing music and skateboarding and just, uh, creating art. So, you know, from the moment when I remember anything, uh, I was always uh, with him, you know, just, uh, wanting to create something different, you know, in the artistic, uh, run of existence as an artist and also as a musician you know we always wanted to create something brutal and something more something different to what was happening in colombia back then we always really like brutal music uh, and yeah in in a way that's kind of what uh changed the metal scene in colombia you know we really like to to always like go faster and and play more brutal and that's what happened when we founded the band Purlin or Purlin. Yeah, and so I guess it's very safe to say then that David um uh was a uh, an influence on you getting into death metal and getting into more extreme types of music then. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember my brother always, you know, we started listening to like, you know, heavy rock, then he went into more like Colombian like punk punk bands and then um uh, hardcore and then we all but it was never enough my brother always wanted to go like wanted to listen to more brutal stuff he then started getting into napalm death and then dead infection necroni like really old bands from that time you know and and he always just wanted to listen to stuff that was faster like more grinding brutality and stuff like that so i and i was always like agreeing with anything that he he wanted to listen to i you know it was kind of like we were so similar in that you know although he was because he was the oldest brother you know i was just kind of like following like whatever he was doing and i liked it you know so yeah we were like very connected in that we never disagree on the kind of music that we wanted to play and how faster and more brutal we wanted to go Okay, and, and something you said before, I just wanted to talk about quickly. You mentioned skateboarding. Um, yeah. Could you? Because a lot of our listeners, um, I you know, I have friends growing up here in New York who were skateboarders. Could you speak a little bit about what it was like uh, as a young skateboarder in Colombia growing up? Was it hard? Were there you know? Did the police 
um, crack down on, on skateboarders <laughs> out in public and things like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I remember us going uh, every every Sunday. There was this big thing going on in Colombia where they would close like a lot of avenues. It's called like Ciclovia, like a bike path, like Ciclo Way or something. And and we would just go with like so many people that were friends who were skateboarding at that time. Everyone between like 10 years old to like 20 or something. And always like cops were like chasing us and we were like, you know, skateboarding inside the malls and things like that. And of course they didn't like that. So definitely they were, they were always chasing us. And But it was a very powerful, like uh, intense, um, a nice way to grow up and do do that, you know, and, and it was like definitely very rebellious. <laughs> we were like listening to music like DRI and like all those hardcore bands that were like so connected to that skateboarding scene at that time. So it was definitely part of like us becoming metalheads, you know, how the skateboarders and and that scene at that time definitely was very connected to metalheads, you know, and metal music at that time, which is not really what's happening right now with skateboarding. It's a little bit different. Uh, but yeah, it definitely was uh, was very, very fun. And, and you also mentioned that there was punk and hardcore. You just mentioned DRI and skateboarder music. Um, mm-hmm. a lot, most of your music, well, you, you know, animals killing people in particular speaks to, um, a, a very specific social commentary on vegan active activism. Uh, if, if I don't mislabel you, um, yeah. do you think that that might be rooted in punk and skateboarder culture? Um, I'm not sure if it's linked. I know that there is a lot of punks and like a lot of, um, uh, that kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, scene that is connected to veganism right now. And uh, even into the metal scene, a lot of that is happening right now where like a lot of metal heads are vegan, you know, but uh, I guess people are becoming more conscious these days and trying to find better choices for their diet and also for like um, to be in peace with the animals and, you know, to like leave the animals alone. So I think it's uh, just something more that's happening right now because before it's not something that was was very hard of like to be like a vegan you know so i think it's more like something that's more modern you know that has been going on probably for like the last 20 years uh so but i i think it's all connected you know like um i think there are so many scenes that are connected to veganism it, it doesn't necessarily and mean that one scene is more connected than others but you know vegans are everywhere now and it's just a way of living for yeah. a lot of people especially all over the u.s and actually all over the world right now yeah of, of course man um and it's uh it, it does make your band stand out um from other bands is certainly sometimes uh, mm-hmm. And and we'll talk about that, but I want to I want to talk first about um, earlier project. And you mentioned uh, Purulent. I know I'm I'm saying it the American way. We were saying before the interview record. I'm going to pronounce a lot of things the New York way. I apologize. I'm trying. Um, it's a word in English that is uh, pronounced Purulent. Yes, Purulent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the band Purulent. Now, I'm accurate in saying Purulent is a fairly influential Colombian death metal band, right? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, when we started uh, playing as Morten, which was the first name that we had, we had like a little bit of influence of like black metal, death metal, like uh, a little bit of grind energy, but uh, it wasn't as brutal as what Purulent became. But we definitely always wanted to push it forward. We wanted to 
play faster. We wanted to just create something different to what was being created in the metal scene in Colombia, where people wouldn't go faster than, you know, doing like a Sepultura riff or, you know, there were some death metal bands, but, you know, we just wanted to do like a lot of blasts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And at that time, probably the, the heaviest band was Massacre, that you probably heard of. Yes. And... Yeah, but we just knew that we could do something faster, that we could play more brutal. So we always were trying to seek that. And yeah, so we definitely like created like a new genre in Colombia, which we kind of brought like that grind into the scene. So a lot of people loved it. You know, a lot of people didn't know what was going on when we started playing in front of like a lot of people. And actually, we played like really big shows. Like one of the biggest one at that time was Rock al Parque, which had like 80,000 people. Uh, and I played that show when I was like 16 years old. So at that time, nobody had heard anything like that live. So it definitely changed people's perception about what you could do with death metal and what you could do with a band that could play brutal music. So it definitely like paved the way a way for a lot of bands that are like, um, you know, playing today in Colombia and that are like very brutal and play brutal music. Yeah, and and I just want to go back. You said eighty thousand people. Yeah, yeah. Now, because for our listeners, if they remember, a few weeks ago we had Eston Brown on, um, who was uh, formerly uh, involved in, in your projects. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and he spoke of uh, the Colombian metal scene a little bit and of his impression of it as someone who grew up in New York. And, you know, 80,000 is um, quite a number of people for any death metal band to play yeah. for. Now, I, I listened to heavily before this interview um, Patologia Grotesca, um, the album on Bizarre Music. It's the first album, right? Yeah, Patologia Grotesca. That's uh, how I said in Spanish, yes. which means... Um, grotesque pathology um and yeah we put out that album in 1995 1997 if i'm not mistaken and at that time like i said you know there was there wasn't anything like that going on in colombia uh it was the first album that was really brutal and you know kind of with like uh, the death grind uh touch you know so it definitely was something that uh like i said paved the way for a lot of bands that that saw that, you know, brutal music could be done in Colombia as well, you know, and something completely different to what other bands were already doing. So, yeah, definitely that's what happened. Okay, and now growing up, where you grew up uh, particular in Colombia, were there touring metal bands that came through and that you were able to see? Was that a thing? Uh, in Colombia... Um, nothing was really happening. I remember I was just telling my friend yesterday, I, I, I think I was watching a video of Entomb and I was like, wow, we're never going to see those bands here. You know, like before, not, not many people from other countries wanted to go to Colombia because it was like kind of dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. and people were very afraid that they were going to get kidnapped or some, anything like that, you know, because I mean, I grew up when like, Pablo Escobar was actually doing a lot of shit and the guerrillas were really crazy. So anything that you could hear from Colombia was not so good, you know. Although, you know, the news always like blow up everything out of proportion. Of course, they they have their own agenda. But uh, it wasn't so bad as it was shown on TV and stuff, but definitely was intense. So a lot of people didn't want to travel there. 
And a lot of bands wouldn't go there for that reason. Uh, so the first band that went to Colombia that was a death metal band was Incantation, which, you know, we were actually put into in that tour to, to tour with them around Colombia. So that was the first death metal band that went to Colombia and we did the tour with them, which were, it was amazing for us, you know, because it taught us so much and we, we got to play with a, with a band that was bigger, you know, that was like an American band and it was doing like big things at that time. So, yeah, but then like, like they also paved the way for so many other bands and opened up the, the, the doors for other bands to want to go to Colombia because then they realized how big the scene was there and how people would get crazy for the metal music, you know, especially brutal stuff. Huh. So Incantation uh, kind of opened the door in a way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was the first death metal band that actually like visited Colombia. That's interesting. Okay. And um, now talked about tours what about access to uh i guess at that time it would have been cassettes and vinyl and cds by uh metal bands um yeah it, everything was moved like that you know mostly cassettes you know um at that time if you had money to, to buy vinyls that was like a big thing you know it, it wasn't like you could just go and buy like two vinyls per per week or something you know you had to save a lot in order to go and get that kind of that kind of stuff i remember growing up like uh, me and my brother were just uh, recording tapes from this metal store that was the only one in colombia at that time in bogota actually and there were others but this guy uh it was a play called more discos where this guy would like focus on bringing like really weird underground music from all over the world and you couldn't buy uh, the, the music maybe he had a lot of tapes and what you could what we were doing is like saving the money that our parents were giving us for like lunch or whatever <laughs> and we're not even eating we were just like oh let's put it towards like buying the music so my brother because i was like way too little to go like into the downtown <laughs> he would go and like you know had this guy like record the tapes for him you had to bring your own tape that was blank and then he would like record it for you for like uh three dollars or something you know and then that's how we got to listen to a lot of like underground music and uh, music from all over the world that was like not very available at that time. Like there was no YouTube, no Facebook, nothing. None of that existed, probably not even the internet. <laughs> so we, everything was being done through cassettes. Mm, wow. Okay. So uh, there's a there's a lot there. Now, um, you guys, you said the album came out in 1997. Uh, it was, yeah. was that around the same time you moved to the United States? Yeah, the album came out uh, and I sticked around for like a year or something more. Uh, and I came to the U.S., you know, I mean, after the album came out, we did a lot. We toured all over Colombia. We were playing a lot of shows and stuff like that. But then I had the, the opportunity to come to the U.S. And then I came, I stayed for some time. Then I went back to Colombia. I tried to go back to playing with Purulin. My brother really wanted me back in the band. But then I realized that I just couldn't live there anymore. Like I already, you know, tasted living here and it, and I just didn't see that I had anything to do over there. So the only thing that was really hard for me to live was, was the band, my brother behind, my family. But other than that, I was like, nothing's atta attaching me to this place. So I just left, you know. So I went back after six months, stayed for two months. Like I said, tried to go back with Pirlin to play again. But then I had to take the decision to, it was either the band or the future of my, in my life. So I just decided to come come here and stay. Wow. All right. So 
uh, uh, with I was because I was gonna say I noticed that after that album, um, you don't play with uh, Purulent anymore, right? Um, do you? And I know you eventually end up in Cop Premises, but that's several years later. Do you play in bands in the New York City scene at that point? Do you or do you, are you even thinking about music when you move to um, the United States, or are you just on a whole different wavelength? I mean, definitely. I was like missing playing drums for a while. I couldn't play drums, you know. Like it was just like me trying to figure it out how to how to live in the U.S. and how to start a life, like a new life, where I moved here by myself with my girlfriend at that time. We were both 17 and 18 years old. Wow. And, yeah, so we didn't really know. We were trying to figure it out as, like, almost teenagers what we were going to do in this new country where I didn't even speak the language. I didn't know many people, probably just one person. And so it was coming. it took me a while to, you know, like set my life in a way that I could like, you know, buy my own drum set and then like find an apartment where I could like actually play drums. And, um, and then I started doing it, doing it again. It probably took me like a year or two to get my drum set again. And then that's when I started looking for people because I was going to all the metal shows I could, you know, it was, it was amazing for me to be in the U S and being able to see all these bands that it was my dream to see them, you know, and I could just go, you know, take the train and go see them in Manhattan, you know, so um, it took definitely took me like one or two years, but then I started looking for people to to put a band together, and then that's where I, when I met uh, Polo from Copremises, mm-hmm. and that was my first band in the U.S. So I joined them, and then that was an amazing way to enter into the New York metal scene. You know, uh, Copremises definitely was a very important part of my music life, and you know, uh, in New York and starting a new life here, and you know playing like the most brutal music that I could because they, definitely Copremises was doing that at that time, which not many bands were doing in New York. Absolutely. If you go yeah, if you go back and look at what they were doing for the time period, um, things were not that brutal yet. A lot you know, a lot of people nowadays take it for granted, I think, the guttural vocals and the slamming and the the um uh, the, the ping blast beats and all that sort of thing. So, but you right. you you were going to shows in the late nineties. Is it true? I think I, I remember hearing you were going to Castle Heights shows probably around the same times I was. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely, man. I mean, Castle Heights was like my second home at that time. Every yeah. weekend I was there. You know, there were so many shows, and that's where it, probably I met you as well, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of people that you still see at St. Vitus from time to time, and you just remember them from Castle Heights, you know. Yeah, definitely, man. And it's like, you know, when you meet those people again, it's like, oh, Castle Heights. And it's like a special thing we share. It's like a bond, you know, because it was definitely a special time when like all those shows were happening there. And for me, it was amazing. Like I say, you know, I was seeing all these bands that were my dream to see. And I never thought I was going to be able to see them until I moved here. And I was uh, that's why people saw me at the shows with my camera. I was like recording every single show, huh. even if the band was not my favorite. I was recording them because <laughs> I would just wanted to, like, you know, document all the bands and, you know, like that experience that I was having, you know, like seeing all these bands. And then I started trading, you know, videos with people all, from all over the world and stuff, you know, because I definitely have a big list of bands. I, I probably have all the all those shows on videos on, on video from that time, uh, even your band, your from that time oh my god <laughs> i might have to buy it from you and burn it <laughs> yeah definitely man um yeah. well well that's because you know people nowadays it's like with youtube and and uh all the, you know instagram and all these platforms 
uh, people don't realize, like it, it, back in the day, you would have underground uh, metalheads would would trade lists of live videos and make like you know you, there used to be these VHS videos where you could have four or six hours even, and you would tape all these shows. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, it's were you um, were you were you sending a lot of this stuff back to metalheads in Colombia? Not really. You know, me and my brother at that time were very radical with them, with the music. We were like, oh, if you don't listen to brutal music, like you don't deserve to listen to it. <laughs> you know, so I wasn't sending it to anybody else but my brother. I was like, every show that I was filming, I was putting it like in a VHS, like six hours, and I would send him like six hours of like full videos and a, a lot of VHS with all the bands that I was seeing. And for him, it was amazing because he still wasn't able to come here. He didn't have a visa. So I was just his messenger, you know. I was like, just recording all the videos and sending, sending them back to him. And, but I was not sharing that with many people. And even him, I remember, remember at that time, he didn't, he didn't want to share that with many people. He was very radical as well <laughs> in like the brutal stuff, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, if like people were not listening to the most brutal stuff, he wouldn't share that with anybody. <laughs> that's that's good to know man that, that that's that's kind of like the old school mentality yeah um, yeah <laughs> well so now speaking of moving to new york city um you know i've grown up on long island always commuting to shows in in brooklyn and queens and manhattan a lot over the years and i think anyone who's part of the new york metal scene knows that there's a huge uh, Latino population, both people from the United States, immigrants, everywhere in between. Did you find coming into the New York City metal scene um, that it was a little bit easier to ingratiate yourself with the Latino community within the metal scene, uh, especially back in the 90s? And has that changed? Are people more or less united? Is that a, is that even a factor? Uh, I guess there is that. Um, I'm I don't really pay so much attention to it in a way. I think when I moved to the U.S., I didn't really know a lot of Latinos at that time. I mostly started hanging out with people from here. Um, and, but I started meeting a lot more people and stuff. And then, you know, I saw like how the Latinos and the people from, you know, South America and Central America were definitely like really deep in the metal scene. So, I mean, I know a lot of them right now, but at that time, I re really didn't know many of them. And, uh, yeah, but I think definitely, you know, Latinos and uh, Spanish people are a big part of the metal scene in the, all over the U.S. And, and you know, there are so many people from South America and Central America now in so many amazing metal bands that are de definitely or have shaped the, the metal scene in the all over the U.S. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, a thought that occurred to me a while back um, when I, it's because I realized how ignorant I was when I was researching bands from Colombia and from, uh, you know, all over, like you said, Central America, South America. Uh, I, it's like the underground underground. You know what I mean? It's like people, you know, you can follow certain levels of underground death metal, but there's a lot of bands that really don't get the exposure down there. And it seems like the scene is explosive. There's so many bands coming out of uh, uh, both of those regions nowadays. Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah, there are so many bands and especially like from because I'm from Colombia, like I am very familiar with the scene and I know that so many bands are there now and they a lot of them are very brutal and they just want to play, you know, like super brutal stuff and like uh, a lot of death grind bands and stuff. But I know that 
there are bands all over, you know, Mexico, they have amazing bands. And um, I know some bands also from Chile, Argentina. And uh, yeah, but definitely in every country, there is something going on with the metal scene there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. It's, there's certain labels, um, certain American, like Nuclear War now tends to procure a lot of that stuff um, and just distribute it. Some of it is, is a little harder to come by, though. Hell's Headbangers, too. Um, but but there's there's some of that stuff that you got to really look for, which is good in a way because it reminds you how the underground used to be. Right, <laughs> definitely. But um, but moving forward from that, you did mention cop premises. Um, mm-hmm. Linking up with Paulo, who listeners should know, Paulo has been on the show in the past many times and told his story and talked about cop premises. We'd like to hear. Um, I mean, obviously, Cop Premises was a very unique band, a very shocking band in some respects. What did you think? Like, tell well, just t- take us through the steps of linking up with Polo and um, Alex and Daniel, and and how that comes to light, and how you meet that group of guys. Um, I remember I met Polo. I I don't remember where where it was a long time ago, but uh, and then Alex and you know anybody else, uh, Danny who was in the band as well. Um, I guess you know I just met met them through that through polo when we started rehearsing and they were and it was like oh these are the guys that i'm playing with and then uh i remember that that, that time it, of course it's always hard to find a drummer in new york and uh because you know a lot of people don't have the space for drums and huh. to make noise you know that everyone's so tight together that you know you don't want to make a lot of noise so i think that's one of the reasons why there are not many drummers but i was like i had the space you know i had a a big drum set and then uh, they saw the space that I had and then I, they knew my background with Peterland they they heard the music and they're like oh yeah this is the guy so that's kind of how it started you know we started rehearsing in my basement apartment that I had in Brooklyn and uh, you know after that we just kind of started playing all the time and then we started making like crazy music and you know they knew that you know I I, I wanted to play the most brutal stuff so I remember it was a little like slower when I came into the band, but I just wanted to go faster and faster. So <laughs> they went, with it, you know. So yeah, but it was definitely fun, you know, to meet these guys, and it was amazing to be in Copremises. So at the end, you know, when I was like about to leave the band, and then we were like uh, just um, separating, um, I think it was just like um, you know things started like falling apart or something like there was not much interest or something anymore and the scene was also kind of weird and um yeah it was also kind of always kind of funny also also to to be on the shows with them because it was getting more intense on the stage (laughs) so i mean even though you know i wanted to to be in the band and it was it was kind of funny like all the things that they were doing on the station stuff I, i wanted to i didn't want to be seen as like a drummer that was playing like in a funny band so I kind of wanted to take a more professional um, direction. So I think that's around the time when, you know, we, were, we started separating. Okay, mm-hmm. fair, uh, fair enough. And um, I think any member, any former member of Cop Premises would acknowledge there was a certain, a certain amount of um, uh, shock value that not necessarily <laughs> anybody would want to sign up for. Um, right. You know, res- respectfully to them. And Paulo's been on the podcast <laughs> and told his story. Uh, so it's also, you know, I mentioned before, um, uh, respectfully, your brother David, uh, passes away in 2003. We know, um, fan, fans all know, sadly, that the video of his last performance, I believe, is available. It was the Fuck the Commerce Festival in Germany, right? Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, I, I did. I respectfully did ask you before the interview, just for the listeners, if you wanted to address that. I just wanted to respectfully ask you uh, to reflect on your brother's influence in death metal. Do you think that nowadays, um, with you, you just said a few minutes ago, all these brutal bands popping up from Colombia, what kind of influence do you think he and uh, Purulent had on that? Um, yeah, my brother definitely had a lot of influence in the death metal scene in Colombia. Like a lot of people see him as that, as like one of the pioneers and the, the you know, the person that actually like kept going no matter what, no matter what people were saying about the music, no matter how shocking it was for the metal scene and how like some people didn't even understand the music, you know. And now, of course, you know, like a lot of, a lot of people definitely got influenced by him and by Pirulin. And, you know, he was the only founder member that stayed in the band until the end, until, you know, the moment when he had to leave um, after, as you were saying, the fact the commercial festival in Germany when they were touring in Europe. And, uh, yeah, definitely people see him as, you know, somebody who's definitely have done a lot for the metal scene and who, you know, without him, it definitely would have been very different. Of of course, man, and I wanted to, that to come across in the interview, um, and how that reflects in some of your work. And uh, I also wanted to talk briefly. Uh, you know, Severed Records. You've worked um, with shout to Barrett and Severed Records over the years quite a bit. And in 2014, if I got all this right, he put out uh, Garavito's Pathological Factor, which is a compilation that spans the majority, if not all, of uh, Purulin's career. Right? Yeah. It was definitely something powerful to put together. Like I worked on it a lot. Uh, I wanted to put everything together. I mean, maybe somebody gave me an idea uh, after my brother passed away. I didn't want to know anything about things that had to, you know, that were kind of like opening up the wound again to think about him and to know that he to make it a reality and know that he wasn't really here. And uh, Purulin was a thing that I said, okay, no more Purulin, you know, to the guys. My brother was the owner of the, of the band, so it was an agreement with them that Purulin would die right there with him. And it was really hard to kind of like put that together, you know, to, you know, just make it a reality. But also it was a tribute. We were like the people that I was talking with and, you know, Barrett and everyone that, you know, was part of the of the project. Um, I you know, we're they were we we were only all in agreement that it was a tribute for him, and I just wanted to do that, you know, and I just wanted to tribute, you know, the band as well, you know, and like everything that was put together, you know, through from the beginning of our career as as the band, and uh, yeah, so we did it, you know, I put a lot of energy into it, you know, it took me a while to put all the material together. And yeah, it definitely has both albums, you know, plus a lot of like uh, unknown stuff, you know, that people never heard before. And um, yeah, so so it's been already a while since the album came out. And yeah, it's, it's good that people can have everything, all the material, the pure material in their hands. And and yeah, so, uh, since a lot of it was sold out, you know, um, uh, people were not having access to getting this music, so a lot of people, when I was going to Colombia, especially, they were asking me if, if I was gonna if I was gonna put it out again or like put out anything that had to do with my brother. So that's when I decided, that, okay, this is the time to do this for everyone, especially for my brother as a tribute. 
Okay, and 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 as I mentioned, um, that's why I brought it up. I felt like there was a lot that went into that, and that's on Severed Records, uh, who will probably come up again in the conversation. Now, it's um, uh, the album is named um, for uh, Louis Garavito, right? Louis, yeah, Louis Garavito, who was a notorious serial killer um, uh, in Colombia in the nineties, right? Yeah. Definitely a crazy guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you mentioned 80,000 people at some of these festivals, how big metal got. Could you give us maybe some perspective on how something, naming your album after something so shocking can be perceived um, in, in Colombia? Was there any pushback? Was there any conservative, um, uh, you know, like shock or outrage towards it? You know, or, or was it taken in a different way than that? Yeah, it definitely was um, intense. I mean, I'm not, I can't really speak so much about it because I wasn't part of that album anymore. I was part of the first one. And then when I left Colombia, you know, that was recorded after I left. But my brother and uh, Daniel were the ones who I think named the album together. And because of like the nature of the serial killer and what he did to a lot of kids, you know, mostly, uh, it definitely was a very sensitive topic in Colombia. So I'm sure, you know, I, I remember even seeing like some stuff that were, like uh, they talked about in TV and stuff like that. And like other people, how it's not that it wasn't well received, but it definitely was shocking for some people that there was an album that had like a lot that most of the, most of the lyrics were like talking about this guy and, and how he did the killings and how he, he like, you know, did like fucked up things to all of these ki- kids. So, yeah. Very intense, and actually, at this moment, we are uh, putting putting the album again together because the Garavitos Pedophilia is something that you know people keep loving it even to these days. And oh. and I didn't want to put anything out anymore, but you know these guys were asking me to do it as an anniversary for the album. That I think it's 20 years uh, since the album came out, so we're actually gonna put it out again. But the 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 um, the album cover that my brother drew was very explicit and maybe before it was okay to put out something like that you could still sell it and it was it wouldn't be banned or censored as much as you know it is right now and that's why the cover is going to be completely changed yeah. i mean the cover that my, bro- my brother drew will still be inside the, the booklet but it's not going to be the cover that's going to be outside for people to see <laughs> We've heard a few stories of reissues um, uh, with things like that going on. Uh, definitely, man. Actually, I think I think Mortal Decay was no. I, I don't want. I don't want. I don't want to say who it was because I don't know exactly. But there's yeah. There's in this day and age, things have changed a little bit, and the nature yeah. of, of the underground music press. You know, with Discogs, uh, nothing really stays underground for long, in a way. Um, yeah. Well, but we appreciate that, and I just wanted to give um, a little perspective and a little tribute to your brother's music. Uh, and and talking a little bit more about um, your music and your bands that you were working on at that time, uh, is it fair to say that you formed Animals Killing People right around the time you left Crop Premises in 2003? It was um, probably right after. You know, I started talking to Manuel, who was he's also from Colombia, and he was uh, playing in the band Secrecy. And he was doing the bass in that band, and he wanted to play guitar, so... I also didn't have a band at that time because I had just left co-premises. So we were talking, we were working together at the same place. And then uh, we were like, hey, why don't we just have this, put this band together? And it was just him and me. He was going to play the guitar and I was do the bass. We were going to find a drummer. So we ended up finding Edwin from Internal Suffering. He had just left Internal Suffering. 
And then we were like, all right, let's put this band together. But they wanted to do something a little more, like, slow. Like, um, you know, and I was just always like, I don't know. You know, I always want to play faster and, like, more brutal. <laughs> so I, wa- I wanted to play the bass. I wanted to take a little break from playing the, the drums. So I already knew a little bit, like, how to play. And then I got better as, like, you know, I started rehearsing and stuff like that. And then we started putting out all the Animal Killing People songs together. But then... It definitely, uh, there was an influence of like um, Cop Premises ha- having been my last band because I was still in contact with these guys and uh, Alex, I asked Alex who was like the guitar player for Cop Premises if he wanted to join in vocals and he did. So we kind of like did some rehearsals like that, but then things changed, you know, like, uh, and we we're like, all right, we're going to go this direction. We're going to go this direction. But I, I wanted to, to create like a band that had a message that we we were not just going to write lyrics for no reason. Mm. And then I was already like vegan at that time. So I was like, okay, I want to create like a band that is brutal, but at the same time has a message that people can actually get something out of, like from reading the lyrics. So, so I was like, okay, I'm vegan. So maybe we can put a message of like how animals can kill people and how animals can like take over. So we mentioned the name, Animals Killing People, something that has to do with that. And we were just like, so why don't we just call it Animals Killing People? And that's how it is, you know, and that's how the band started. <laughs> and that's how it got named as well. Okay, man. And um, uh, so you come off a of car premises. Now, that you said something there that's interesting to me. The you 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 want it to go fast you want it to be brutal you have a background um in death metal uh predating cop premises but would you say that in in animals killing people and later on in andromorphous rexalia which we'll get to is is cop premises still lingering as an influence on your work are you still kind of um uh keeping that legacy alive through the speed and brutality in in your mind Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've never thought about playing anything different than that. You know, I mean, I like to play drums. I'm a drummer. I could play drums to any kind of music. But like for me to put so much energy into something definitely has to be something that like pushes my the boundaries of me as a drummer for me to get better and faster. So at that time, of course, it was so um, it was so fresh that I had just left the premises. So I wanted to do something either like faster or more brutal or you know more technical so that's why when i started animals killing people with manuel who is not in the band anymore i just wanted to do something you know uh, maybe more technical you know but like i said i started playing the bass so i was fine not playing as fast in the beginning because it wasn't my instrument at that moment so it was fine for me, but then once uh, uh, we had to tell Edwin that we were not going to work with him anymore because of like the musical differences and, and we wanted to do with the band, I was like, all right, there are no drummers in New York. I'm just going to go back to the behind the kid and I'm just going to start playing drums again. Mm-hmm. So the bass thing didn't really last for too long, you know, although I recorded the bass in the first album and the drums, but that was that was it. You know, I didn't play bass after that in the band. But I definitely, you know, when I started playing the drums again in the band, I just, you know, the songs definitely changed and I wanted to play faster and make them more brutal. Okay, and on the um, the the lyrics and the art all reflecting uh, veganism, 
you've you're, you mentioned you just mentioned a few lineup changes, and you've had other lineup changes through the years. Have all members actually been vegan, um, or, or uh, at some state, you know, maybe maybe even a you know vegetarian? I don't know. I'm, I'm not you know respectfully. I'm not mocking, but have have you dealt with that? I know how hard it is to get a lineup going for a band in general. Um, mm-hmm. let alone maybe someone who has a certain ideal or, you know, a certain lifestyle. Was that, was that part of the approach? Well, I mean, as you said, it's really hard already to find a lineup and have something going on that it's like serious, you know, that you can find serious people, serious musicians and good ones, you know, to play this kind of music in New York. So it was I, at some point, you know, not, not everyone's vegan, you know, like uh, at this point it's just me and the bassist who were really into veganism. <laughs> The other guys are not. and But for, at some point, I thought, okay, what am I going to do? Do I really want to create this band where I have this philosophy? Is my philosophy into the lyrics. I write all of the lyrics, and it's all about animals taking over, you know, animals doing that to, to humans, killing them, and, you know, kind of like change, turning the tables, you know? But at some point, it was like, okay, do I want to continue the band and sacrifice the philosophy with not having everyone being a vegan in the band or do i not want to continue the band because i'm not going to find musicians that are good and that are vegan at the same time so i wanted to continue the band and i wanted to keep doing it it was my dream to do that but i knew i had to sacrifice that and play with people who are not vegetarian or vegan so which kind of sucks but you know it's what i had to do in order to continue the band (laughs) All right. No, fair enough. I respect that, man. And it makes uh, perfect sense. You're still getting your message across. And yeah. um, that doesn't necessarily mean that other bandmates um, uh, don't embrace the message or support it. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know. Uh, so speaking of lineup changes, um, we get to, well, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but let, I, I did want to talk about, if I got his name right, Justin Bohm of Orchidectomy from Canada. Yeah. Uh, he sings on Kentucky Fried Killing, right? Yeah. How did you hook up with him? Tell us a little bit about that. Was he in New York uh, or did you do that remotely? No, I remember I met him at a show where I don't know if he was back to me. I think Copremises was playing a show and I wasn't in the band anymore. And then Polo asked Justin to play a song to kind of do some backing vocals for one of the songs on the stage. And then when I heard these guys' vocals, I'm like, oh, wow, this guy. It's like, you know, Andres did the first, Andres from uh, Postulated, he did the first, like, the vocals in uh, Human Hunting Season. And I was already looking for someone else that could do, like, the full album. So when I saw this guy on the stage with Copremises, I heard his vocals, and I'm like, oh, this guy has to be the guy who sings our album. So when he got off the stage, I started talking to him right away, and I, I, and I told him I play in Animal Killing People. He knew the band, and, and he's like, yeah, I'm definitely interested in like recording your album. And that's how it happened. <laughs> and we did it remotely, of course. He lives in Canada, so he, we just did the vocal tracks, you know, and he sent them to us. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's just something interesting um, uh, for listeners. That, you know, we've talked about orchidectomy on the podcast, if people didn't realize that. And um, we also mentioned that briefly, like I said, when we had Esten Brown on a few weeks ago, uh, and I should bring him up now, I guess, because Esten comes into the band after um, uh, Kentucky Fried Killing, right? Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit, bit about hooking up with him um, and uh, uh, bringing him into the band? And then uh, also, you know, he kind of mentioned Ammo comes from the same area as him, and they kind of they did things together. 
Yeah, they were involved in this band called uh, Humanity Falls. Mm-hmm. And I saw the band before. I saw them uh, live at some show. I don't remember so many shows. So, and I thought that it was cool. And then I saw also Amo playing guitar. And, you know, it, it wasn't as brutal as I liked, you know, because, uh, you know, I'm very particular about the bands that I like. But definitely it was a band that was good and was putting out good stuff. And I saw Aston singing as well. I don't remember right now how I met him, but then you know we we just talked, and then uh, uh, and then I told him, "Hey, we're looking for a, for a vocalist and stuff." And then he just yeah, he just said yes, you know. And we, he came to our rehearsal, and then we started rehearsing together. That was around the time when I was just when I was just playing with Manuel, I think, and who was the first guitar player in. Um, and then through him, I met Amo, you know, because Amo started coming to all the rehearsals, you know, or some of the rehearsals when, you know, they were together in the band with Aston. And then, you know, little by little, we started talking more and more and more, and Amo started getting more familiar with the band. And then, you know, uh, I think that was around the time when uh, Manuel left band, and then Amo came in, and then he just became the guitar player and vocalist at the same time. Oh, well, not at the same time, actually, because Eston was still in the band for a while. But then, you know, we kind of like had some differences with Eston and then he had to leave the band. And then Amo had really good vocals. So I told Amo, why didn't you just do everything? Do the vocals and play the guitar at the same time? And it's like, yeah, let's do it. <clears throat> okay. So, yeah, there's a lot there with the lineup um, to, to get into. Now, uh, another thing I want to ask you about... Um, because I, I know you eventually, you go back and perform in Colombia with animals killing people, right? Yes, we've been there probably like three or four times. Okay, so, well, first, something that I neglected to ask you before is, what was mm-hmm. the metal scene like? Uh, well, I, you know, we talked about 80,000 people um, when you were 16 playing drums for Puyolent. Um, uh, coming to New York City to the metal scene, was there a little bit of a culture shock for you seeing these small, dingy nightclubs with, you know, 60 to 100 people in them? <laughs> I mean, no, it's not like every show in Colombia was that big, you know. That was my biggest yeah. show when I was 16. It definitely was a shock for me to get on the stage and see all these, like, the ocean of heads in front of me. Uh, but not every show was like that in Colombia. The shows de- definitely were bigger, you know, like people really like metal there. And at some, usually like there were like two, 200, 300, 400 people, you know, at metal shows. But there were also small ones, you know, where you just see 100 people. So I was just seeing shows like that too. This show that I played that was like super huge. It's a uh, Rock al Parque, which is a huge festival in Colombia. And, you know, there are, at that time, it was still like, it was the first years of the show of the festival and it's funded by the government so there is a lot, a lot of money involved in the in the production of the festival so that's why it's such a big festival like let's say this uh this uh festival when i played it in 1996 they they did it in a park where metallica played so you could imagine like the size of the, this thing um but you know definitely there were small shows and when i came to the U.S., I didn't care that the shows were small. I just wanted to see the bands, you know. I just wanted to, <laughs> to see, like, all these amazing bands that I never thought I was going to have the chance to see. So, but I started also going to all the festivals, like Milwaukee Metal Fest and Maryland, and I thought that that was amazing, you know. I didn't, you know, 
it was a good size for me to there was no difference really with like what I was already seeing in Colombia. Okay, so not not that crazy um uh different. And then when animals killing people goes back in the uh mid thousands, mid two thousands to Colombia and performs do you notice anything different in the scene from when from when you left? Is the death metal scene in Colombia bigger? Is it even um, more guttural and brutal in ways that you could trace back the influence, uh, you know, to 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 Perulent and that sort of thing? Oh yeah, definitely. When I when I went back, I saw how people were moaning to like super like grindy stuff. They definitely most of the bands and most of the people that I knew who even play like in bands that were like slower before. They were already just like they just wanted to play fast and crazy and brutal, and play, people were really enjoying it. And and at the same time, like all the bands that were like in the festival were all, they were all like either either like grindcore or death grind or something brutal, nothing, nothing slow, you know. Which yeah. you know, I I definitely enjoyed death metal in all forms and shapes, <laughs> but um, definitely there was a lot of grind energy there. Okay, and now something we talked about on the show, like regionally, like you had the Florida sound, you had the New York sound with like suffocation, internal bleeding, and um, that sort of thing. There was the Swedish sound. You're talking now about how when you went back to Colombia, all the bands were fast, everything had to be fast and brutal. Why do you think the emphasis on grinding and blast beats and speed uh, in the first place? Um, uh, is there is there some reason um, why that might be a big thing regionally? And is there some reason why that might be a big thing in the death metal scene in general as we progress uh, through the years? Well, in Colombia specifically, when I went back, like I said, I saw that there was a lot of influence from when Pirulin was alive. You know, like a lot of the bands wanted to start, you know, they wanted to start listening to more brutal <laughs> bands. So a lot of bands got influenced by, you know, Pirulin first of all in Colombia. And then, you know, they started listening to all the brutal bands from all over the world. So a lot of bands started playing really fast and really crazy. And I mean, although, like I said, I enjoy, all, I enjoy, all, enjoy all kinds of metal and especially death metal. Like, you know, I always enjoy that grind. So I see that that change is... It's been happening in in a lot of you know in all places all over the planet even like in Europe where there was a lot of black metal now there is a lot of brutal bands and you know people just want to play more technical and you know play you know whatever they want without without getting influenced so much by you know what the bands are doing like in that specific region you know like in Europe like that like black metal and stuff like that now you. I go to Europe and I see like so many brutal bands and stuff, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it reflects how much the internet has changed things. Whereas, oh, yeah. you know, years, sure. that's why you have all these locked ins, like the, everyone's um, into researching the old Finnish death metal scene and Swedish scene now with these books. I don't, you know, I don't know that you necessarily see that as much nowadays because all the, all the kids have the internet. They're not as focused on what their neighborhoods, you know, people are doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, without skipping too far ahead, in 2007, you form Andromorphous Rexalia with uh, Joseph Luciano, right? Yep. Yeah, he was, uh, I think at that time, he was, he was already doing bass on on animals killing people, like on and off. And me, I already saw how Joseph was such a crazy, insane guitar player. He, he always was doing crazy stuff. And he always had these, like, 10 string guitars. <laughs> and... And he showed me some stuff that he was doing. He's like, hey, why don't you, we do our own thing together? You know, let's see what comes out. 
and you know since i'm since i'm a lot into like cosmic stuff and extraterrestrials and all that like you know wanting to find out what's going really going on on the planet you know and what's hidden and all that stuff i told him and we should really further focus into you know like making the band very cosmic you know like very extraterrestrial stuff you know and he would definitely agree especially goes with the music because the music is crazy you know so we're so we agree into like you know wanting to create something super crazy and different and that's when we created Andromorphous Retsalia. okay and you you said something there <clears throat> you said something before about um when you started animals killing people you did you didn't want the lyrics to be about nothing you want the lyrics to be something people could read and and get something out of and something that would reflect your uh your your perspective in life andromorphous rexalia does you know you just said that that's something you're interested in could you expand on that a little bit um how far does that interest go back uh and would you say that you believe in extraterrestrials oh yeah that's definitely something that's been on my life since i was little you know since i could remember i definitely always been um I remember being very interested uh, into what's happening beyond this planet. I really wasn't very interested in what's happening on this planet. I'm like, I prefer to, I always prefer to know what's happening on other planets, like what's happening on the spiritual realm where you could like leave your body and, you know, just kind of travel outside of your body. I grew up in a, in a house where my dad had like a bookshelf where he had a lot of books about that kind of stuff because I guess he, he was also interested in that. So I remember just like holding this book called uh, the Bermuda Triangle, and for me, I didn't want to put this book down. It was always with me, you know. I kind of it was kind of like the best thing that I had in my room, you know. And you know, I started seeing pictures of UFOs and extraterrestrials, you know, and like uh, reincarnation, and you know, like I said, people traveling out of their bodies with their energy bodies and things like that. Since since I was very little, so it definitely always interests me. You know, so it definitely goes back to when, you know, since I'm little and all that stuff, you know, and that's, of course, I always wanted to, you know, put that message out there too. And what the better way to do it than by, you know, playing crazy music, you know, and putting it together with that. <laughs> okay. And, um, you know, respectfully, uh, you know, and we can always edit um, if you don't want to speak on it, but would have you ever had what you would describe as a supernatural experience? Um, yeah, it's not something that I definitely talk about very much with many people. I mean, the people that know me and know my art, they know that I'm very connected to all of that stuff. Uh, probably it's not something I'd share so much, uh, or maybe I have, you know, because I've been interviewed even here in TV in New York City for stuff like that, you know, for especially about my art. And I've spoken about some of the experiences that I've had, I have had, but definitely I have had some experiences, you know, not all of them we share here, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I know that. You know, aliens are monos, and you know, mm. sometimes you can see them. <laughs> huh. I mean, some of them are, they look like you or me, or maybe I could say we look like them. Fair enough, man. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, um, all right. So, with Andromorphous Rexalia, now it's something I've mentioned briefly, and actually, Metal Archives got a hold of it. Um, I was briefly in Andromorphous Rexalia. I, yes. I I traveled out there and rehearsed a few times. I had to bow out. I could not commit to the band. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, it was it was fun. I got to really see what you guys were about. I had a lot of respect for the process and for the dedication. Another thing I had a lot of respect for was your cats that you had at yeah. the time. Yeah, 
cats are amazing you know they were always so chill even with all the crazy sounds and music that we were making and yeah but it was also super fun to have you to have you in the band back then and and we did some shows together and they're still on video you know and still like, um, <laughs> i still have to upload them one day but it was super fun man having you in the band was so cool and your voice uh, your vocals are amazing so it definitely like uh was a fun time when you were in the band for a little bit <laughs> well mutual respect man i i appreciate it man and it was yeah it was a um fu- funny time in my life we'll just we'll just leave it at that but I, you know i appreciate it and the reason i brought up the cats though i'm not just making jokes you had really big cats. Your cats were huge. Yeah. yeah, I remember one of those cats that I had who he recently passed because he was very old. He had a good life. Um, he definitely looked like a... Some people didn't know. It was so weird because I could tell that he was a, a cat. But a lot of people, <laughs> when they saw him outside, like right there in my porch or like in my backyard, and they could see him from the street, they were always asking me if he was a dog or a cat. And I could never understand... If they were joking, they were not joking. They really were confused. They thought that he was a dog, but yeah. he was a cat. <laughs> yeah. He was super cute. I, I've, you know, we've, we've always kept cats, and I take care of some feral cats around the neighborhood, man. But, yeah, you had some big cats, man. I was like, wow, what's Wilson feeding these guys, man? <laughs> but, I know. They were very special, man. <laughs> well, the ones I have are very small, completely the opposite. Yeah, that that was a special um special batch. Well, something that ha- that had me thinking uh because um my, you know, our cats out here, they catch rats, they catch mice, things like that. Out in New York City, New York City is kind of infamous, maybe it's a stereotype, maybe it's not for having huge rats, the sewer rats of New York City. Um that can get very aggressive and animals killing people actually has a song Rat Apocalypse, if I or Rat Apocalypse if I pronounced it right. Yeah, a rat apocalypse. Yeah, rat rat <laughs> apocalypse. Now, was that now I talk about the metal scene in New York when you moved here, were the rats disturbing to you and the rat and garbage culture disturbing when you first moved to New York City? Um, I mean, it was definitely something funny to see, like I I don't know, I, you know, it wasn't disturbing, it was just like, wow, look at these rats walking all over the train in the train tracks and stuff. But, you know, they're cleaning up you know, if they're here, it's because, you know, people are here and people are probably most, uh, the most like disgusting <laughs> and the, the ones creating all of the garbage for these rats to come. So they wouldn't be here if we wouldn't be here. I think we are the problem, not them. <laughs> wow. I mean, if they're coming into our house, I'm sure it's going to be a problem. But, you know, if we're, they're here because we are here. You know, you just flipped it. You're absolutely right, man. People need to tidy up um, before they want to complain about the rats, I guess. Yeah, definitely, man. You know, right. we like, yeah, I can, you know, I see people throwing stuff in the garbage in the street. Like, they open up their window in their car and they just throw a cop on the street as if it's like a huge garbage bag, like, everywhere. And I just can't even understand how people do that. But, you know, some, you know unconsciousness is everywhere, you know? Yeah, it's. I hate to see that. It's unfortunate, and it's something I can remember seeing that as a kid, and it still go. You know, it still goes on today, man. Nobody, if, if not nothing else, it might be worse, depending where you are. Um, yeah, man. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was funny when I was going through the lyrics and going through the um, the bands for the research that so you had that rat apocalypse. It made me think of those huge cats. You know what I mean, man? You had to keep them around for, for the for the rats and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think it room. Um, where did I get that from? I, I did you do you know that movie Willer? Yes, Willard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I probably got it from the movie, and I'm like, what if like rats just become super huge and they just started 
eating everything and everyone. That would be crazy, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, anything can happen, you know? Yeah, you know, for all the talk we do on this show from time to time about horror movies, people should go back and watch Willard. That I don't, I don't think that's one that doesn't get a lot of play, man. Right, but yeah, it's definitely a cool movie. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people are up on that. Inspire me to write that uh, that song and those lyrics. And well, any other? What do you remember? Now, this is what was the movie? I don't know if you've seen. There was a Bill Cosby movie. Long before any of these, you know, these allegations and these his, his case and all that. But back in the 80s, there was a Bill Cosby movie where he was some sort of special agent. And the whole theme of the movies were all these uh, herbivore animals were made into carnivores by the government or something. Do, do you remember that? I don't think I've ever watched it. No. <laughs> I have to look this up because it's almost like uh, it's 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 a it's kind of adjacent to what to the conversation here. Um, but it was some old old Bill Cosby. Maybe because it's maybe because it's Bill, we'll leave it alone for now. But people can look that one up too if they want to Google it. Um, yeah, what's the name? I, I gotta look it up, man. It was. Yeah. I remember it used to be on TV a lot. It was a Bill Cosby movie with animals killing people in it. It was some sort of like government project to make little like bunny rabbits and oh, it's yeah, Leonard Part Six. It is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I might maybe maybe the animals killing people wasn't as big of a plot line as I remember because I was a little kid and that's just what was cool to me. But it was like rabbits jumping up and biting the guy, you know. <laughs> that's cool. But uh, well, it, and anyway, moving forward, man. Um, you like we said, uh, Andromorphous Rexelia and animals killing people kind of going through the through the late two thousands into the teens. Um, both putting out, um, well, you put out the split with one another to get both bands out on Severed in 2012, um, yeah. and then continue uh, with, with other releases. You talked about um, starting the other band, start, starting Andromorphous with Joseph. Did you find it more difficult and more busy to keep both bands going, or was it natural? Um, I mean, at that point, I think I had a good amount of time. You know, now I don't have any time <laughs> for anything. Um, but um, I was able to keep up with both bands. I definitely, like, the focus was always animals killing people. Um, and Andromorphous Red Sally, we were able to keep that up because Joseph was still living in New York. Now he doesn't, so that's why it's been very quiet for a long time. It doesn't mean that the band doesn't exist anymore. We might put it again together one day, but uh, I don't know how it would work since he's not here anymore. And um, but he's planning on maybe moving back to New York at some point. So we've been talking about it, but we don't know. It might happen. It might not. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I always make time for the bands, and I always I definitely put a lot of energy and, and, and time into into them. So it wasn't a big deal, you know. I was just it was mostly what was taking up my time besides of working and stuff, you know, just like playing music back then. Okay, uh, fair enough, and. Um... <clears throat> Another thing I wanted to ask you about, the Animals Killing People music video uh, where you're on the farm um, and playing with the pigs running around next to you and everything. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, it was definitely super amazing. Um, I met this girl at some store. I, it was probably some kind of vegan store. And we started talking and then she told me, oh, I worked at the, I think it was the Woodstock Animal Sanctuary. I think that, that was the name of the farm. And then I told her, oh, that's really cool. I have, I think I've been there. I think I had been there already once. And then I told her, hey, I have a band, you know, and I'm, we're going to be recording this video. I had the idea of just asking her to see what would happen. What would happen. And then 
And I told her, hey, by the way, we might want to be recording this like outside, you know, not inside, like in a studio or something. And we might want to, you know, have some animals around us, you know, something really cool. And what if maybe we do it in your farm? Like, would it be possible? And she's like, and I was thinking, yeah, maybe we can do it like around some really big pigs or something. That would be super fun. You know, that would be amazing to just make a really strange video, you know. And then she was into the idea. She said she was going to talk to her manager. And then she came back to me like, I don't know, two days later or something. And she's like, yeah, we're all in. We want to do it. You guys can come whenever, next Sunday or something. And then we did it. So we just went up for a day. We shot the video. And then that's how the video, the video happened. And all the pigs were super happy to be around us, to be honest. And they were not caring that we were playing music. They were not caring that I was playing drums. They were just looking at me like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and yeah, they were super funny. They, these people actually were super cool with us. They they brought a lot of food out so that they could be, they could like go and eat the food, which all the food was vegan. They were eating like a bunch of carrots and stuff like that. They got crazy and they were eating all the carrots and stuff and they they just wanted to be in the area so that's where we set up the instruments and then they were just walking around us as we were recording the video so that's how it happened <laughs> awesome and for the listeners this is the video for humans disgusting species Human um, disgusting species. the unedited yeah. version of which is available on the animals killing people youtube channel yeah, there is also an edited version but you know for some reason i uploaded the unedited version first just mm -hmm. to kind of do a test and then suddenly it became viral so i'm like should i take it down now that it went viral and i just decided not to so the the actual edited version is not even as known as the unedited version <laughs> <laughs> okay man well it's <clears throat> it's recommended either either way man and um yeah i was like wondering like what would you what would you edit out there's no for mtv <laughs> you know but um, yeah, no, it was just like you know the there were no effects or anything it was just like a clean camera you know but in the edited version we did a lot of effects and you know splashes of blood and things like that you know it's well, <laughs> it, it's it's pretty funny man i i enjoy it a lot man it's it's a great video to watch there's some good scenes with the pigs just kind of lounging in the background uh, so funny, man. even at some point i remember we were shooting like the guitar player like you know like the guy who was doing the video like with the camera he was like recording him from the ground and then this pig goes in front of him and starts peeing right in front of the camera. So they, that was like a really cool shot. <laughs> well, you were in cop premises, so the, uh, that you're cool under pressure there. That's no, that's nothing new. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I've seen <laughs> definitely with cop premises on the stage. <laughs> yeah, that's that's nothing new. You know, that's that's an old trick. But it was funny, you know. Yeah, man. Um, it's a great video. I really encourage our listeners to definitely watch that video um, uh, and, and and look for the uh, the Humans Disgusting Species uh, video by Animals Killing People. Um, another thing, was 2017 your first time playing the Obscene Extreme Festival? Yes, that was the first time. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that, that festival definitely was very connected to my brother's uh, passing. Uh, he was on his way to the festival, and he was actually going with the owner of the festival in mm. the car where, you know, they crashed. And unfortunately, that's what took place. You know, they could never make it to the festival. And so that really connected me, connected me with the, you know, with the guy who was throwing, doing the festival and stuff. And then we just started talking for a long time. 
finally, I, I told him where, hey, where I'm going back to Czech Republic, you know, um, because I had already been there uh, since my ex-girlfriend was from there. And then I told him, we want to go with the band. We're actually putting this store together and um, we're going to be going all over this, the, all over Europe and we're going to go to Czech Republic as well. So what, what about uh, Obscene Stream? And he's like, yeah, definitely you're in. So that's uh, how we got into the festival the first time. Wow. Hmm. Would, would you, was there any feeling of um, closure, would you say, from that? I mean, it definitely was, uh, I felt like I was doing it for my brother, you know, like he couldn't make it to play in that festival because that's right before the, it happened after the accident happened in when he was there. So it definitely will created some kind of closure, if you can want to call it that, because uh, he didn't make it, but I did for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I appreciate that, man. And, you know, looking at the time, you've been very um, generous with your time and I want to be respectful. Uh, but I also want to um, speak about and promote your other um, talents outside of music. Uh, which include uh, 3D painting, um, sacred ink tattoos, uh, shamanics. I'm going to mispronounce all this stuff. Let's just talk about it. Um, And one of them is a Patreon question, uh, a listener-submitted question that I think would be a good starting point from Shane Reedy, listener, asks, how did you first get into body painting as well as shamanic sound healing? I hope I pronounced that word right. Yeah, that's totally fine, man. You pronounced it well. Um. Like I say, I've been an artist all my life. Even I think I'm a multidimensional artist. I'm a metal drummer and I love brutal music, but I lo- also love meditation. I love um, ceremony. I, you know, I come from South America, so I'm very connected to like anything that's shamanic. I, it's it all comes together hand in hand. You know, like uh, extraterrestrial connection, cosmic energy, and all that stuff. I've been always connected to all of that. <clears throat> um, I've been a musician since I'm little, so I always felt that I wanted to connect my music with the kind of energy that I felt. You know, I, I always felt like I could do good things to people, like if I would play my hands on others, like it, it would make them feel good or it would stop somebody's pain or something. So I, maybe I thought, oh, maybe I have something that I could like help people to heal or something. But I never, I, I kind of stopped doing that, you know, and I wanted to connect more to music through music, so I knew that there was this uh, genre, if you want to call it that, or this uh, um, experience and technique that you could, like, you know, play music and make people go into a trance and, you know, let them work through, like, their stuff that is, like, not good for them, you know, like, whatever is in their mind or their bodies. So I started, like, putting that kind of music together, and then I started playing live, and I saw how it was affecting people in their mind and in their bodies and energetically. So it's something that I got into maybe like 20 years ago, I could say, maybe like 15, you know. Uh, it it ha- definitely happened here. But uh, also I travel a lot to Mexico and Central American countries where there is a lot of shamanic energy and there is a lot of shamans and people who kind of like, you know, do ceremonies to bring people into a higher state of being. So that's how I got I got connected to shamanic energy and shamanic sound healing music, and that's what I do. It's one of the things I do. Uh, also, body painting. Um, I I always drew. You know, I kind of always felt like I wanted to draw my arms and things like that. I've always liked tattoos, so of course the tattooing 
has been in my life all my all my it's it's been in my life since I'm little because my brother was a tattoo artist since I'm like 14 years old probably before that I was his first tattoo guinea pig you know and he did his first tattoo on me he became an, an amazing tattoo artist but I never really got into tattooing like I he wanted to teach me but I was just focusing on the drums but I always liked the the scene I was always surrounded by tattoo shops tattoo artists you know all of my friends were tattoo artists so after he passed away maybe 10 years after like that's kind of when I felt like he was sending me a message you know and then somebody was coming up coming down from Canada that was his my brother's friend as well and he was he's a tattoo artist who has a shop in Canada and and he took me to he wanted to go to the place where they supply like all the tattoo shop let the tattoo stuff you know and then uh, I told him hey you know I feel like I need to start tattooing my brother's kind of sending me that message so he's like yeah why don't you just get like a starter skill and then let's go to your house and my girlfriend at that time was like I'll let you tattoo me right now so that's how my tattooing like um, process and journey started you know and ever since I've been tattooing, you know, and uh, and then uh, you know, like playing music, it's all connected, you know. Sometimes I go on tour and I just do everything at once, you know, when I'm uh, traveling around the U.S. or different parts of the world. And then with the body painting, uh, it probably started like six years ago when uh, I met this amazing uh, artist here in New York. His name is Mystico Campor Pico Shango, and he took me under his shoulder, you know, and then he started teaching me how to do this kind of 3D UV art. And then at the same time, I was going to all of these events and parties. And then, you know, I started painting with him. And then that's how everything started. And now I have a shop, you know, here in Richwood, New York, where I do all of these things. I body paint, I do this shamanic sound healing, and I do tattoos. So it's a tattoo shop that it's a 3D UV gallery. Okay, and so, that and that's... Uh, uh, my and everything. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? That, that's kind of like the story, you know, I'm like summarizing everything in that little story, you know. No, that's that's great. You, like, you're doing really good for this interview because I, I know I've had, had you on a long time and I'm picking your brain, but you're giving very good summaries of everything. Um, yeah, and of course, there's a lot, of, a lot more details, but I'm just trying to, you know, give you a little bit of the story, you know. Of course. Well, there's a lot there. And um, uh, that's that's uh, H-U-M-O, Humo Sacred Ink Tattoos in Ridgewood, Queens, you said? No, I changed that. I used to call it that, Sacred Ink Tattoos, but then I realized that it's another one, I think in Virginia or something like that. Oh, okay. So I started, I wanted to change the name and, you know, it's all, I, the cosmic energy and all that stuff is always here in my life and in my art. So I wanted to change it to something of more, more like what I was doing when I paint life, you know, my art and stuff. So I called, I call it now Cosmic Wizard Tattoo. Cosmic Wizard Tattoo. Okay. In um in Ridgewood Queens and um just uh quickly before um uh, we wind down we, we talked about animals killing people um is is that your only project to date is there anything I neglected to mention any side projects and is animals killing people working on anything has there been anything going on that we should look out for uh yeah animals killing people as a metal band is my only project right now I won't I wouldn't really have any more time to do anything else as you can see i do a lot of things with everything i just explained <laughs> so sometimes i feel like i don't have time for anything i'm just like from the moment i wake up till the, till the moment I'm, i go to sleep i'm doing art and i'm trying to keep up with everything i'm doing 
So, yeah, I don't have any more projects. With Animal Skilling People right now, we're taking a little break. We were doing a lot of shows. And we recently played a few festivals, uh, one in Las Vegas, uh, Las Vegas Death Fest or, or Slaughter Fest, which is called right now. And uh, then we play a few shows here in New York. And then uh, now we're just taking a break until the year starts again. And then we're, but we're composing new, new music. We're like working on our new full length, which we hope is going to be out probably by, you know, mid 2022. So yes, that's what's happening right now with the band. Okay, and um, like I mentioned before, you've worked with Severed Records on a lot of those releases, and um, Gorgiastic Records, is it Gorgiastic or Gorgiastic Records? That's affiliated with Severed, right? They were. It's not a label that exists anymore. It was owned by Andres from Andres Garcia from Internal Sovereign. Mm-hmm, yeah. I know that he's not, he, I think he sold all of his part to, to Barrett, Severed Records, so that's not a label that exists anymore. But uh, yeah, we're still working with Barrett and several records. You know, the last thing that we put out, we actually did it with CDN Records from Canada. It was a it was a split uh, CD with Gorpat from Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was a one time thing. Uh, let's see. We're gonna see what happens for this new full length. We can really tell right now. Okay. Yeah. The the um the animals killing people. Gorpat split and the. Uh, the blood, the blood of Christ, vomit remnant split. CDN coming in heavy uh, out of nowhere with those man. That was uh, that was cool for them. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and shout to Barrett from Severed Records. Uh, now yeah. the, the last thing I'll ask you, Wilson. I do appreciate your time. I know the listeners are going to really appreciate this one. There's been people asking for you a lot. Uh, one one more listener. Um, my good friend Tom Ander has a question, and uh, we, you know, respectfully, you can decline this. Uh, yeah. But he asks, I think maybe um, he's listened to Andromorphous Rexalia. He says, what really happened in 2012? What is happening now? In 2012, in terms of what? <laughs> what the Mayans were predicting and all that stuff? Or what they I, said they were predicting? I think maybe he wants your maybe your perspective and your opinion on um, some of the more prophetic or more conspiratorial uh, things that are affiliated with, with 2012, maybe, maybe because he's a fan of your music. Yeah, Something well, like I mean, 2012 definitely was a special time. Uh, a lot of people definitely were reading the things wrong. You know, they were saying, oh, it's the end of the war and stuff like that. It was just the end of the Mayan calendar, which definitely like uh, marks uh, like a before and after, you know, to our reality. And a lot of people, you know, definitely got hyped up by, oh, what's going to happen? And, you know, a lot of people became or, you know, turned on their spirituality in a way, you know. So it definitely changed a lot for the planet. Uh, it definitely has changed so many things in so many different ways. But at the same time, it's like the dark days that are happening right now are the end of something. I don't know what specifically, but, you know, as you can see, everything's crazy right now. It definitely, you can call it the end days, but the end, not the end days that is like the apocalypse or anything, you know. It's just something more like, what do we want to do? How do we want to create our reality from now on? You know, are we going to let the ones that control us to run our lives and to ruin them or to make us uh, robots? Or are we going to take responsibility for ourselves and like drive our lives in the way we want to do it and how we want to become free? Always being responsible for, you know, everyone else and everything that's happened on the planet, the animals, you know, the planet itself. 
So I think this is where we are at. And it definitely has a lot to do with like beings from other planets as well. They don't like that we are making such a mess here because, you know, these beings, they they work with vibration. You know, they feel what we're doing here and they, it could also affect them. And that's why we maybe we'll have or we already have uh, like an extraterrestrial intervention in one way or another. But I think it has a lot to do with that. You know, I think uh, definitely people should get ready to see crazy big changes you know that are happening already in the behind the scenes but that are gonna be coming out more and more and more and as you can see in the last two years everything has changed and shifted so much that we definitely get gotta get ready for something bigger that's about to come mm. yeah wow <laughs> well there, there's a lot there and i appreciate that um and i think that's a that's a great that's a great note to, uh, to 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 lead off on here as as we wind down the interview. Um, that about sums it up with in terms of the depth, the lyrical depth of your bands. I think we got to it there, uh, and I appreciate that. So the last question that I ask every guest would be for you to recommend um, one older album and one newer album by any artists you like, metal or otherwise, for us and for the listeners. Oh, definitely. Um, the older album would be um, from Epitaph. It's a Swedish band that, that not many people knew about, but it was, it's amazing. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, somebody uploaded it uh, recently. And it's called uh, Seeming Salvation. A newer album, I would say... Um, let me think about uh, I've been listening to so many bands recently. Oh, you should, you know, you should all get the Mutilated Records um, compilation, which is an amazing, like, digipack double CD that just came out uh, from the label Mutilated Records from Colombia. They are, they, are, they are actually here in New York right now. We're part of it. One of our songs is in the in the compilation. And it's, uh, there are a lot of bands from Colombia, you know, there are all brutal bands and the Purulent is included and animals killing people as well. And there are so many other bands from all over the world as well. So you should definitely look into that. Let me look at the name. I have it right here. It's called Spreading the Sickness, Volume 3. Mut- so look into that. Mutilated Records. Didn't, didn't, weren't they affiliated with that show that you guys played with Pyrexia uh, a month or two ago? Yeah. They put that show together, the festival together, and that's when the album came out. They put it together like uh, we just played that maybe a month ago, maybe less. Yeah. Uh, Pyrexia and uh, Immortal Sovereign play mm-hmm. Carnal from Colombia, and then a bunch of a bunch of other bands, uh, some from around here and another one from Colombia. I don't remember the name right now. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, people should definitely check out that compilation and shout, yeah, shout to Mutilated Records. I, I met two of the. Uh, there were two guys um, uh, from the label. You probably met Pablo. Yeah, I met them briefly at the at the Pyrexia music video shoot uh, here out here on Long Island a, uh, a while oh. back. Yeah. Um, a lot of people there. Yeah, cool, man. All right, so um, definitely appreciate that, man, and uh, appreciate your time. Is there anything else that we failed to promote or plug that you just want to uh, shout out uh, real quick? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would. Uh, if you guys are interested in like tattoos, you know, we we do all kinds of tattoos here at uh, Cosmic Wizard Tattoo. We are located on uh, five hundred nine Underdog Avenue in Richwood, New York, which is in Queens, very close to Bushwick in Brooklyn. And um, we're here to tattoo you, you know, I, we, like I said, we have, I have all different kinds of artists that are amazing in their own style. I do a lot of sacred geometry, 
that work like line work all of that stuff in the sacred arts and um yeah also we have like merchandise for animal skilling people you can go to our our big cartel store online you just need to type big cartel animal skilling people and then it'll take it'll, it will take you there we have uh, our cds hats shirts all kinds of merchandise so yeah if you guys uh, want to also find me go to um you can find us as Animal Skilling People on uh, Instagram, which is kind of where I talk to people through. And also you can find me as Umomaya, which is spelled H-U-M-O-M-A-Y-A. That's my spiritual artistic name. And uh, and Cosmic Wizard Tattoo on Instagram. So, yeah, if you guys want to find us there, go ahead. And we'll meet here. All right, there you have it. I appreciate your time, Wilson. Thank you very much. I also want to thank you, man. Thank you for the interview. It's been amazing, and you know, it's it's good that we did it finally. interview with Wilson Rayram from Animals Killing People, Andromorphous Rexalia, and as we said, formerly of classic uh, Colombian death metal band Purulent. And Cop Premises, by the way, man. Shout out to them. So, uh, happy holidays to everybody. Um, if you're into the Christmas spirit, this should be hitting you at the right time this episode, man. Uh, we appreciate all of you. Tom, I'm glad to hear from you at least, man. I'm sorry that you got to keep cooped up for a little bit, man, but uh, glad, glad you're going to film school there. I always like a good film school. And don't worry, we'll have some drinks for uh, New Year's. I should be, I think I am going to be clear of the COVID on Christmas, according to uh, the doctor's calculations. Uh, I like how you just assumed that I celebrate New Year's, sir. Um, my, yeah. <laughs> my, yeah, my new, my new Year's starts on St. Patrick's Day every day for personal reasons. We're not going to get into that, but. Big shout to, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. But anyway, uh, shout out to everybody out there. And I do celebrate New Year's every year. Um, I do, back, shout out to my man Big Frank, always holding me down with the um, Office Max or Staples calendar, uh, depending where he goes. The big, the big, huge one that takes up your whole desk. Oh, my dude, un- I miss having a desk for that. My uncle gets me one of those every year. And I don't have the desk space. If you see my desk here, the um, there's not a lot of real estate here. So I take a coat hanger. You can take a, like a wire coat hanger and adapt it to one of those big joints. And now you're really talking because you put it up on the wall. And that's where all my heavy hold dates go and everything, man. Yeah, it's that time of year, you know. Analog calendars, bringing it yeah. back. Old yeah. school, man. Recommended until we come out with our heavy hole um, uh, cast uh, team calendars, man. That that one might be, we got. We're still working out the the details with that. It's gonna be rough. We gotta uh, get gotta get releases from you from you and Justin's wives. Yeah, we gotta rent some fireman suits and then take them off. I don't know if everyone's gonna sign off on 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 shots of the hot guys over here. Right? But listen, enough about that, man. Enough joking around. Uh, hot guys, Christmas. I can only transition now to a voicemail we got. Um, it's it's a Christmas miracle. Um, there's that. What's that classic movie? It was it was it? Home Home for Christmas, Home for the Holidays. Wait. Yeah, a Wonderful I, Life, and then yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The, I, don't know. I'll, yeah. I know there's a movie my mother always cries to. It's like I'll be home for holidays or something. Tony Baldone's here. He made it. 
uh, for the team. He left a nice little message for everybody. Um, he came. He actually adorned me with a beautiful size 4X pastel. Uh, it's sky blue and, and meadow green um, with yellow lining uh, ski coat and uh, overall pants ensemble for my um, ski season. I, I, he, no, I, don't, I told him I don't go skiing. But. Yeah, he, he asked for my address. I didn't give it to him. <laughs> I'm scared of Tone Baldone. All right, man. Let's roll that Baldone. Hey, Tone. It's uh, Tony Baldoni checking in with a nice Christmas uh, holiday extravaganza special uh, wishes, best wishes voicemail, if you will. So, uh, Merry Christmas to the heavy hole. Merry Christmas to you and yours. One, two, three, um, on the tree. Taking a dump, feeling like a skunk because I'm fucking trashed at 8 o'clock in the morning right now on my way to work. But you know what? That's how Tony Baldoni does. And uh, I figured I would share a nice uh, Christmas story with the listeners. You know, when I was a kid, I, uh, I went downstairs one day. I heard some rustling. It wasn't even Christmas night. It was like... Uh, couple nights before, I saw Mommy, uh, you know, hanging out with uh, this guy from the neighborhood who was dressed up as Santa. I said, Ma, what are you doing? I was like five years old. I said, Ma, what are you doing? She said, scurry back to bed. That was that. But it had a last impression on me. Ever since then, I got a thing with, like, Santa Claus. Like, I get excited, but then I also kind of want to hold their head underwater and watch them squirm. That makes sense. Merry Christmas. Brave. Yeah. Very brave. brave. Tony Baldone, a brave... I never said he wasn't a brave man. No surprise here, sir. Brave and strong. Wow. Big big Christmas shout to Tony uh, Baldone. Jesus. All right. Move, uh, move, <laughs> moving forward uh, on our special hol- holiday uh, voicemail round. Uh, another listener thinking of us this holiday season. I feel like we're opening the holiday gift cards, you know what I mean, to, to Big Will and the family. Uh, Roman Cheech, uh, frequent, a longtime supporter and now frequent um, caller, uh, vying for Justin's position, I believe, um, with the, the, uh, the voicemails. Uh, he, he left another one. Let's see what he's got to say. Hey, uh, this is Roman Cheech again. Um, calling with a couple of recommendations. Uh, what we just heard was a little clip from Black Christmas, also known as Silent Night, Deadly Night. It's a classic uh, slasher intruder film. Uh, it's from the 70s, I believe, 78. But it, it's in the vein of all the 70s slasher films, uh, especially Halloween. It really reminds me of that. But it has great kills. Great screams. It's shot well. It has great build-up. It really gets me in the right holiday spirit. Oh, and, and the ending's 
fantastic. I think probably the best ending of any slasher film. But just a little movie recommendation for the holidays. Uh, my other recommendation is a Gore Grind album. And I'm not especially into Gore Grind too much. I have, the, you know, my classics. But uh, the band name's Maggot Vomit Afterbirth. And that's what really drew them to me. Uh, the album names Where Beauty Feeds the Maggots, which I thought was perfect as well. And I checked out the artwork and the logo, and they just they hit right at home as well. I thought that all three of those things were, I don't know, they just, they, they really nailed it. The song titles as well are really sick. Um... But yeah, uh, Sick Album has really, really great drums, uh, grinding guitars, the amazing, sickening vocals. I have no idea how they got the effect on the vocals. I assume it's an effect, but I, it, it has to be an effect, but I'm, I'm not sure how especially they get it. But I, I think they really hit the nail on the head with this one. And yeah, I thought that would sit well with the heavy hole folks. Anyway, that's all I have for recommendations, and I'm still waiting to hear back about Justin's job. Now, all jokes aside, I hope he gets back into the fold of things. You know, all, all our, all the heavy hole fans miss him dearly. It's not the heavy hole without Justin. And yeah, I hope I got this one right. All right. Oh, uh, Roman sheets cut out. Yeah. I guess uh, he reached the maximum time, but there's a lot of information to cover there, I suppose. Uh, yeah, yeah. He recommended, um, what was it, Black Christmas? Yes. Uh, one of the best slashers of all time. Possibly the best Christmas-themed slasher. Hmm. Um, Olivia Hussey playing just a woman with perfect hair, as she does in everything she plays. Hmm. Um Great performance by her. If you haven't seen Black Christmas, I recommend checking it out. I haven't seen the new one that they redid, but uh, what's the point? The original's perfect. <laughs> uh, check that out. Yeah, I will have to check that out. I'm going to be upfront and admit that I do not know that movie. I've, you know, I've obviously heard it referenced a lot. I know Adams uh, uh, talked about that, but yeah, I I need to. Um, uh, put that in my repertoire, man. And then he talked about Maggot Vomit Afterbirth. That's another... It's funny because there's another one. I've seen Adam rocking the shirt. Adam got himself a Maggot Vomit Afterbirth t-shirt at some point uh, last year. And I saw him... Ro earlier this year, I saw him rock. I've heard, seen the name around. It's another band. Got a peep. And, um... And, and, you know, I miss Justin, too. Yeah, me too, man. It's, uh... Hopefully he'll come back uh, for the new year, whether that be January 1st or St. Patrick's Day. I w Those are actually the last two days I would ever expect Justin to surface. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I might have to go out there with the little Zoom pod recorder and, uh, and try to try to get him in the streets. But um, we'll try to reel him in, uh, in uh, next year. Uh, 2022, man. But uh, it's not over yet, man. Shout out to everybody tuning in on Christmas or if it's just another day for you. We appreciate it anyway, man. 
Um, hope you uh, enjoyed our, our interview with Wilson. If you want to be like the um, two special guys there, Big Tom and Big Shane, that popped in their Patreon questions for Wilson, uh, you can go ahead and log on to, what was it, patreon.com slash heavyholepodcast, Tom? That's a, that's a go. That's it. Oh, yeah. I nailed it. Yeah. And then you can also go to uh, heavyholepodcast.com for all the other links. We, uh, we're on all the social medias uh, that you like. Um, Tom, if I wanted to call your personal home phone number, mm. and then you were like, no, Will, that's weird. Why don't you just leave a voicemail like Tony Baldone and Roman Cheech did? What would that number be? Go find yourself a phone booth, enter a quarter into the slot, the retrieval slot, <laughs> and dial 631-837-3274. And you'll be famous. Yeah. Yeah. You, what, Yule? Yule Tide? <laughs> Yule Tide guy. Yeah. Wow, man. This guy, careful doing those little tricks on the imaginary snow here out here. Um, but seriously, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Weekend, uh, Happy Holidays, and all that stuff. We'll be back before the New Year with another episode, I think. But um, big shout to Wilson Ray Ran for uh, from all of his bands and for all of his stories um, uh, from Earth and beyond. We appreciate him, and uh, we appreciate you, the listener, man. And um, uh, hopefully we'll see Justin back on the podcast in 2022. Not as much as I wanted to see of him in 2021. 